Um, just to give you a little bit of an update, we've been making our way through the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, we are still in the Old Testament. Last week, uh, Robert had a chance to talk about uh, the King Josiah, Israel's greatest king. And uh, we're going we're gonna to take a break from the prophets, so we're going we're gonna to kind of fast forward through that. And today, I'm going to be looking at the book of Ezra with you. Um, uh, when I was presented with Ezra, I thought, I don't know anything about Ezra. So I found the table of contents, and I found where Ezra was, and I read it. <laughs> it's a good start. And when I read it, it was uh, difficult. I wasn't sure what to do. Um, so before we jump into that, I want to tell you a quick story about something that happened to me about two and a half months ago. Um, and it actually starts a little bit before that. Uh, me and my wife uh, have two kids. We have our daughter, Lily. When Lily was born, we both continued to work full time. My wife works from home. Um, and we just had somebody come in and help, help out with, with Lily throughout the course of the day. Um, and that was a really good system. And then when my daughter, or when my son, Makai, was born, we decided we don't want to do childcare anymore. We want, we want us to be the primary influencers of our children. So we started to talk about what that was going to look like. And we talked about if one of us were going to quit our job. We both really liked our jobs. And we landed on we were both going to take a step back and be part-time in our careers. And we, so I get to watch my kids three days a week. My wife gets to watch them three days a week. And then uh, we both get Sundays together. It's a really good system, and it's worked out really well. It's been challenging, but it's worked out really well. Uh, but about three months ago, my daughter Lily got to this point of recognition and realization, and something really difficult happened. We were upstairs playing, uh, they were doing a tea party, I was upstairs, and I was on my phone. I was playing a game on my phone, it was this silly Disney game, and Lily came up to me, she put her hand on my phone, and if you're a parent, you, you may have had this moment that is just heart-wrenching, and she goes, Dada, put that down and play with me. And it broke my heart. And I did. <laughs> I said, yes, absolutely. And I, I went downstairs, and as we went into quiet time and I had some time to reflect, I, it was really hard. I had to start thinking through this. And so uh, you may have seen a post that I put on Facebook. I had this decision. I was going to get rid of my iPhone. I was going to get a flip phone. I was going back to the, back to the Stone Ages. Little, little uh, spoiler, it's really hard to find a flip phone that works on Verizon's network these days. Um, so instead, what I did was I locked down my phone. I deleted every application except the phone, the messages app, and the camera app. And then I put a restriction passcode on it, and I gave it to Ketty. She was the only one that knew it, so I couldn't download apps. So I had this phone that is a $1,100 piece of equipment that was just a phone. And the first three days were so difficult. I would find myself picking up my phone and unlocking it, and then realizing I couldn't do, any, do anything with it, and I would set it back down. But it was amazing, because when I would sit it back down, I would go and I would play with Lily. Or I would talk to my wife. Or I would read a book. Or I would go on a run. It was amazing. After three days, I didn't miss it as much. It was easy for me to have it off to the side. It would just sit on the counter all day. And then whenever I got a phone call or a text message, I'd just respond to it and I'd get back into my life. It was a really great thing. And my three-year-old daughter brought me to this moment where I realized that something was taking away my attention from her. So we'll take that story, and we're going to sit on the shelf, because I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. So we jump into the story of Ezra. And as I mentioned, I did not know much about Ezra. So I had to do some research. And in doing my research, I encountered a bunch of verses that were really tough for me. So before we jump into Ezra, I just want to ask a couple questions. And I will, there's only going to be three questions up here. And it is completely OK to not know the answers to these questions. Because as I prepared for this, I only knew the answer to half of one of these questions. So a little recap of where we've been. 
the Israelites were sent into exile. Why were the Israelites sent into exile? This is Q&A portion. So I'm going to ask you guys, anyone have any thoughts or, or know some answers? So why were the Israelites sent into exile? Discipline? Disobedience. Yeah, so God allowed them to be sent into exile because they were being disobedient. They had continued to wander away from him and make other things their priority. So he allowed them to be sent into exile. Absolutely. That was the part I knew. This is, now you guys are all caught up with me. Everything else that you know, you know more than I knew going into this. Uh, next one, how long were the Israelites in exile? Hmm? 40? 40 is a good biblical number. They were, in, they were in exile for a little longer. 70, about 70 years of exile. So King Nebuchadnezzar came, he sacked Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple, he sent them into exile. Over the course of 70 years, he continued to force the Israelites out of their home. Very difficult. I can't imagine being, families being ripped apart, being sold into slavery. Next question, why were the Israelites allowed to return? What happened? This is where we're going to pick up in the story today. Anyone, anyone have any ideas? That's okay. So we're going to jump in and we're going to look at Ezra 1, 1 through 4. It kind of starts to answer that question. Ezra 1, 1 through 4 says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of, uh, in the first years of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put in writing. And this is what Cyrus Cyrus, the king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem in Judea. Any of the people among you may go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide with them silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So the answer to that question, why were they allowed to, to go back into, into Jerusalem, is because God moved in the heart of a king who was in the line of succession to, the, peop, to the, the king who exiled them. God moves in their heart, and this King Cyrus, who is, who is not an Israelite, says, God has commissioned me to build for him a great temple in Jerusalem. This is crazy. And so they do. They go back in, and I, I think that it's helpful to know the timeline. So they were in exile for, for uh, 70 years. So from 605 B.C. to 537 B.C., the Israelites are in captivity, they're in exile. In 537, Cyrus commissions Zerubbabel to return, and the temple is rebuilt. He spends about 20 years rebuilding the temple. And where we're going to pick up today is in 458 B.C. Ezra returns, and the law is taught. So from 605 to 458 BC, about 150 years of exile, return from exile, rebuilding the temple, and now we are where we're going to start today, and we're going to look at what happens with Ezra. So who is this Ezra guy? Well, Ezra 7.25 says, and you, Ezra, this is a different king, this is uh, Artaxerxes, it says, and you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the law of God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. So Ezra is a student of the law. He is not in Jerusalem. 
during the exile. Uh, he's not in as they're rebuilding the temple. He's just studying the law. And this king says, I'm sending you to set up a justice system for, this, for, for Jerusalem. You know the law, and you need to go and you need to teach those who don't know the law. And you need to set up a system for justice. And that system can involve things like death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. So Ezra makes his way to Jerusalem. As he makes his way up there, I can only imagine he is excited to return back to the, to the country and to the land uh, where his people are residing. He's excited to continue moving this community of followers of God to be closer and in a more right relationship with him. But as he gets there, he notices something new. Ezra 9, 1 through 4 says this, after these things had been done, the leaders came to me, this is Ezra speaking, and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept, the, kept themselves separate from the neighboring people with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they have mingled the holy race with the people around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in unfaithfulness. Ezra says, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. It's quite the reaction. Then everyone who trembles at the word of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until this evening sacrifice. So Ezra's return to Jerusalem his excitement to lead these people in a way that is worthy of the calling of their God, Yahweh. And he gets there, and the, one of the first things that happen is the leaders come to him, and they say, hey, we're marrying non-Israelites. The leaders of these people are marrying non-Israelites. And this is where I started to have conflict. <laughs> because it seems like that's, that, that's a pretty understandable thing. They'd been in exile for 70 years probably during that exile, they're just looking to make a life for themselves. So they may have found themselves wives or husbands or taken on non-Israelites and just a way to make it through. Um, but why is Ezra so troubled by this? Why does this cause Ezra to tear his clothes and his tunic off and pull his hair out? Well, it's because marrying outside of the community of the Israelites is what got them into this place the first time. They were in exile because the practices of the Canaanites and these non-Israelite families, because of the child sacrifice that we've been talking about since we started this series, because of the things that distract the followers of God from Yahweh, all of those are the things that led them into exile. It's a slow process. It wasn't this quick, they did one thing and God said, get out. It was time after time after time that the Israelites wandered away from God and let things distract them from God that led God to say, you know what? Disobedience is here, and there needs to be a consequence. So Ezra's reaction is of one of protection. We need to keep this community safe. We need to figure out the best things that we can do. And right now, this threat of intermarriage with non-Israelites is a big threat to our community. So this is what Ezra proclaims. He, he brings all of the families to Jerusalem, and it says, Within the, within the three days, all of the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, 
all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Interesting, I love that. And because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from these people around you and from their foreign wives. So Ezra calls for divorce. He says, if you are married to a non-Israelite, if you have children with non-Israelites, you need to separate yourself from them. and You need to send them out from your household, and you need to not see them again, because they are going to be the downfall of us again. So as I prepared to teach this morning, I thought, whew, <laughs> okay. Normally, when I encounter tough pieces of scripture like this, I have one of two responses. I either want to dig in and I want to figure out what's going on, or I want to run away from it. I want to go find something safe. The problem with teaching on a morning is that you can't run away from it. So I asked Andy Betcher if I could have breakfast with him, and we could sit down and talk about this and figure out how I was going to present this call to divorce your foreign wives as a relatable sermon on a Sunday morning. And Andy sat down with me, and we had a good conversation. I told him kind of everything that I was, I was struggling through. And Andy said, have you... Have you looked uh, at Deuteronomy 13? And I was like, perfect, Andy, thank you. You're saving me. You're going to give me a verse that's going to get me out of this mess. And then I looked at Deuteronomy 13, and I should have known when he said Deuteronomy. But it says this, if your very own brother or your son or your daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the people around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. <laughs> Your hand must be first in putting them to death, and then the hands of the people, of all the people. Stone them to death, because they tried to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all the Israelites will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do an evil thing again. And I said, and, and he looked at me and he goes, well, at least he didn't call for this, right? And I said, yeah, that doesn't help me. So I've encountered now two pieces of scripture that I struggle with. But this one I had an answer for, because when I encounter these scriptures that I have a struggle for, if they're in the Old Testament, this is my go-to line. But this is the Old Testament. This is Old Covenant. And then Jesus came, and now we're in New Covenant. So I'm glad that we don't have to stone our wives and our brothers and our friends when they try to distract us from God, because Jesus came, and now we don't have to do that anymore. But before Andy even said anything, I went, oh no. And he goes, what? And I said, well, I know this one. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. That's Jesus himself. And I get to another piece of scripture, one that Andy didn't have to give to me, and I go, why is it so hard to hear things like this and see this? Jesus said, love your enemy, and in another turn of phrase, he says, hate your mother and your father and your wife and your children and even yourself. How do, we, how do we deal with these pieces of scripture? And Andy said, what do they have in common? And that's when it started to click for me. Because in all of these situations, 
things are distracting us from God. Ezra was so upset because he knew that these intermarriages were going to lead people away from Yahweh. He was a student of the law and a student of history, and he'd seen it happen over and over and over again as he was studying. And so his response was, we can't let this happen again. We need to take drastic actions. Divorce your spouses, tear apart your families, and it's going to suck, but it's for the good of our people. Now, I don't have the authority to say whether that was the right decision or not. The Bible doesn't say that God told Ezra to do that, but he was leading the Israelites, and that was the call that he gave them. The Old Testament says, if someone distracts you from God or tries to lead you away from God, you need to stone them. When you make that relationship more important than the relationship we have with God, drastic actions need to be taken. I very much am saying do not stone your brothers or your sisters or your friends or your wife or your daughter. But then we come to this one, and then it's, it's Jesus saying you have to hate your family in order to be my disciple. It's hyperbole. He's, he's making a point. He's saying nothing else can be more important than me. And in relationship to me, if these people are trying to distract you, you have to have a guttural, visceral reaction. He doesn't say leave them. He doesn't say disown them. He doesn't say disregard them. He doesn't say run away from them. He brings it back to him. You have to be my disciple. You have to love me more than anything else. We sang a song this morning. It says, he is jealous for me. God is jealous for you. Nothing else can be more important to you than him. That's the terms of his relationship. He has to be first. But as I got to all these verses, I was thinking to myself, okay, so people distract us from God. We can't just be hermits, but people are the problem. My wife and my kids and my friends are all distractions from God. And then Jesus has one more. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about adultery. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that no one who looks at a woman lustfully has, or that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart, or in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one body part than for your whole body to go into hell. Four for four on those hard verses this morning, right? Just bringing it. It's not just others. It's not people that are distracting us. It is ourselves. It is our nature. It's the power that we give people. And if you find yourself in the spot where you go, yeah, but like looking at a woman with lust in my heart doesn't really hurt anyone, you're kidding yourself. It hurts, it hurts the person, a person who's a child of God, who you're lusting after, and it hurts you. It distracts you from that relationship with God. Now, I want to be even the most clear I've been all morning, I don't think and I know that Jesus isn't calling us to self-mutilation here in response to sin. He's not saying that you should gouge your eye out. He's using hyperbole again. But there's uh, an amazing uh, man named Tim Mackey. Hi, Holly. Yep. He does the voice for the Bible Project. He's actually uh, one of the two creators of the Bible Project. He used to be a pastor in uh, Portland, Oregon at a church called Door of Hope. And I've been listening to some of his sermons, and he actually speaks on this. And he makes a really great point that if self-mutilation were the actual answer of what Jesus' response to this adulterous, lustful heart is, there is a better body part to get rid of than gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand. So 
What's he talking about? He's talking about our heart. <laughs> He's talking about our heart and where our heart lies. This is a really tough one because a lustful heart is something that I've struggled with my entire life. I came to know Jesus when I was 18 years old, and I had 10 solid years of being lustful without any repercussions just hardwired into me. So I walk around every day and I have to bounce my eyes, as a book that I read when I was a 19-year-old told me. And I have to be really mindful to be careful of what I watch on TV. Those are sacrifices that I have to make if I want my relationship with God to be the most important thing. Sometimes I wish it was as easy as cutting off my hands, gouging out my eyes, and then it would be done, but that wouldn't solve the problem. My heart would still desire things more than they desire relationship with him. So how do we respond to all this? We kind of start to, to wrap this thing up this morning. What, what do we do with verses like this? If Ezra were to walk in here this morning, and he were to pull you aside after church and say, hey, there's this thing that I can see. I haven't, I haven't never known you, but just by looking at you, I can see that this is going to be a stumbling block for you in your relationship with God. Or this is already a thing that is causing you a very difficult time with God. You may have already, I believe, in a group this large, stuff has already started to pop into your head. Maybe it's food. You know what? Rather than go to God for comfort when I'm frustrated, when I'm sad, I'm going to go to food because it's going to make me feel better. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe I'm not going to eat food and I'm going to make my body look the way that it needs to look or I want it to look so that I feel better when really I should go to God to tell me that I'm better. Maybe it's finances. Maybe you work so hard every single day so that you can have enough money because you want to be secure when you hit 55 or 65 or 75, whatever age it is that you're going to be retiring at. And you're not going to trust God with that. So money is your idol. Or the other way around, maybe you don't have any money, but you just want stuff. So you charge it. You just put it on a credit card and you rack up debt. Maybe somebody has come to you and said, hey, you need to stop doing that. It's going to lead to destruction, but you can't stop. Your response is, I can't. Maybe it's lustful hearts or pornography, and you just say, it's not hurting anybody because I just do it in the secrecy and the privacy of my own home but really it's killing you inside. I want to look at one more verse. This is when Jesus is approached by a young man. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good teacher? No one is good except God. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your mother and father. Teacher, he says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love this. It's important to stop for a second. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He doesn't do this out of disgust. He doesn't do this out of shame. He looks at him and he loves him. He says, one thing you lack. He said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come and follow me. So, without putting the answer up, how does this verse end? The guy says, perfect, I've been looking for this answer my whole life, I'm going to go give everything I have to the poor, and I'm going to come follow you, Jesus, right? At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus saw this man's heart. 
He had spent his whole life trying to keep with the law, not committing adultery, honoring his mother and father. And in doing so, he had made a great reputation and a lot of money for himself. And yet he still came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do? What's the answer? And Jesus gave him one thing. Money is more important to you than me. You need to give that up. And his response is probably most of our response when we're faced with these distractions from God. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Earlier I told you the story about when my daughter came up to me and said, Dad, put your phone down and play with me. I'm ashamed to say that that wasn't the first time she's done that. There have been plenty of times before where she said, Dad, come play with me. And I said, just a minute. I'm just going to finish this. I went back to my phone. And I, I turned away from something that was worth more because something was giving me pleasure in that moment. I was playing a game on my phone, and it was distracting me from the most important relationship, one of the most important relationships in my life. I think this is what happens when we look at these hard verses, and that's why they're so difficult. So when Ezra comes to you this morning and says, hey, I think this is a problem, we have two responses. One, we can turn away with our face fallen. We can be sad. We can say, you're right but I can't give it up. Or we can do what I believe the answer to all of these things, these hard verses, has been. We can run to God. We can say, God, you're right. Or the person who said this to me was right. This is more important to me than you, and I don't want it to be. Help me. Because I think that the difficulty is when we think about giving up something that we love, we see it as giving up this thing. I had to give up my phone, which I love. But the thing that I got was an authentic, genuine, and better relationship with my daughter. When we think about food, or finances, or pornography, or lust, or anything that's not God, and we go, I don't want to give this up because it's so good, and it feels right, and it makes me feel better. The encouragement I have for you is this. God is going to be there for you. He is better that relationship is better. So practically, there's a couple things that could be happening here. Maybe you don't have a relationship with God this morning. Maybe you're here because you're just exploring. Maybe you're here because your Christian girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife brought you and made you come. And you're thinking to yourself, get that guy off the stage because she's going to divorce me or break up with me. <laughs> well, I have good news for you. I am very clearly not telling anyone to break up with anyone. But that invitation to relationship that I'm talking about is open to you, too. It's not just for people who believe in Jesus. God wants to have relationship with you. And there isn't a prerequisite to entering into that relationship. It's not give up your life of partying, give up your life of chasing money, give up your life of free sex. Then you can follow me. It's follow me, and I will help you along that journey. If you're already a believer, you're faced with a hard decision this morning. Maybe there's something that come, came to your mind. Maybe there's something that came to your mind about a friend that you just say, hey, I need to be an Ezra for this person. I need to go to my friend who I've seen practicing these, these destructive qualities, and I need to approach them and say, hey, man, I love you, and I think, this is, I think this is getting in the way with your relationship with Jesus. It's going to be hard. And maybe they turn away with their head falling down, but hopefully they say, you know what, I think you're right. And then together you can walk through that. It is so difficult. And my prayer for you, no matter where you're at this morning, is that if something has come to your mind and you feel like, I think this might be a barrier 
my relationship with God. I'll be honest with you, as I was preparing for this, it was really great to come up with a cute little story about Lily, but technology is a distraction for me from my relationship with God. The amount of time I spend every week watching TV, listening to podcasts about sports and uh, video games, all of those things are distractions from God. This isn't like, that wasn't a I did well. I'll actually tell you the truth. I restored my phone and I have everything back on there. So maybe I need to revisit that. Maybe I need to get a flip phone. And I need to walk away from it. I need to say, God, this is a barrier to my relationship with you. And I don't want to give it up, but I need to. And then he'll comfort me in his arms. He'll give me strength. So no matter where you're at this morning, my prayer is that if something is in the back of your mind and you're trying to push it back because you're, you're going, I don't want to deal with this this morning or this week or ever, talk to God about it first. He's going to be the one that can help you through it. And then the next step is talk to somebody close to you about it. Talk to your spouse or to your best friend and say, I am realizing that this is keeping me from a true and genuine authentic relationship with Jesus. Because the first commandment is have no other gods before me. And for the longest time, I thought of that as have no other gods before me. Like in a list, don't put any gods above me. Don't, nothing else can come before me. So it's God, then it's technology, then it's food, then it's money. But that's not what God's saying. He's saying, don't have any other gods in my presence. Nothing else can be your God if you are my follower. That's a hard life to live. You go through relapses. You restore your phone. And then you teach a uh, teaching on a Sunday morning. You go, dang it, I need to get rid of my phone again because it's back. But when you do it with God, when you do it with people, it's easier to deal with. So when you encounter those hard pieces of scripture, whether you're just reading through the Bible, I would encourage you, don't just go, okay, where can I go to feel safe? struggle with it. Find somebody and say, hey, I'm really struggling with these verses. What's going on here? Uh, because my journey through these last, this last month and a half as I've been preparing for this has, has helped me realize so many things. Now, this is a perfect morning because we are going to do communion here in a couple minutes. And God, God gives us communion as a way of reflection. In fact, in Corinthians it says this, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord is an unworthy, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So Communion Sunday is a great time because we get to come and we get to, as a body of believers, take the bread, drink of the cup. But it's so important, and especially on this morning, to examine ourselves, to examine our relationship with God, to ask him, is there a spot where I'm being disobedient for you? Is there a blind spot that I need to give up or I need to work through in order to have that full relationship with you? I put this as an asterisk. I have to say, don't take the words that you heard from me this morning and say, okay, I need to go break up with my girlfriend, or I need to, I need to go do something drastic. I hope that this morning was an encouragement for you to go to God if there's a spot where there's a place in your life and say, God, is this a problem? And if so, what do I need to do? And if God leads you to breaking up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, Cool, man, that's on him. He has authority to do that. Um, but as we do this this morning, as we come and we take of the cup and, uh, and, and the bread, 
I want us to, to just take a moment and ask, God, what are those spots where I just need to give something up or I need to, I need to give to you to, to lead me to where I need to be? But I'm going to pray for us. And, uh, and the band's going to play a song. We're just doing one song, so take communion. Uh, find somebody who you care about and take communion with them. If, the, if there's something on your heart, have that conversation or go out throughout this week and do that. So I'm going to pray right now. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this group of people. God, I thank you for hard verses. I love your scripture, God, and it is so encouraging. But I also love, God, that it, it challenges us to be true followers of you, to, to make you the most important thing. I pray this morning for everyone in this room, God. I pray that if we have relationships with you, God, that you would reveal any small crevice where we need to give things over to you, God, and be obedient. I pray for people in this room, God, that, that don't have relationships with you, that they would know your surpassing love, God, that you would bring them into that relationship and start the process of forming a life, God, that is obedient to you. And I pray for this week, for the rest of this month, God, for any hard conversations that might come from this morning where we go, you know what, I need to do something. I don't know what it is, but I know I need to do something and I need to talk to someone about this. God, I thank you that you are always there for us. I praise you that you are a jealous God. You want all of us, and you don't want us to share ourselves with anything that is not of you. As we come before you this morning, we take communion. I thank you for the sacrifice, Jesus, that you made, that your body and your blood restored relationship, and that because of that we get to we get to know you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.